on 105 FM and online. Good morning, it's Merlin Katari on Cambridge 105 Breakfast in the middle of a great hour of Too Good To Be Forgotten. Just gone 9.27 on your Monday morning. Hope you're feeling good, Cambridge. So I've now been joined in the studio by three lovely ladies, always nice to say on a Monday morning, uh, all from the Cambridge University's European Theatre Group. I've been joined by producer Emily, uh, production designer Phoebe, and of course Charlie, who's been working on uh, education and kids' access. Their production of Richard III is coming to the ADC Theatre uh, tomorrow, 14th of January, all the way through until Saturday. Uh, and I'm very glad to welcome Emily. Hello, Emily, how are you? I'm pretty good. Well, let's bring your microphone up. That would help, wouldn't it? There you go. Let's do that one. It's one I can hear you. Yeah, I, I'm great, thanks. We are kind of mid, kind of putting the production together. So we've just come from the last day of rehearsals. Today is the tech. It's kind of in the middle of everything, but it's a really great moment because it's just been such a lot of work and it's coming to fruition, I think. So, so a lot of expectation then for this production? Um, yeah, but also kind of a sense that for everyone that it's their work paying off and it's kind of coming to the point where everyone can enjoy it and kind of take that moment when everything's come together. What I love to hear, so my first question for you really is why this particular production, why this particular Shakespeare play? Um, Well, the European Theatre Group tour takes a Shakespeare production to European schools every year. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't go ahead this year because of cast illness and various different factors. Um, But so that really influences your choice when you come to picking the play um, because it's got to fit in with the sixth form syllabus particularly. But then also you think about the performances in Cambridge and in London that we do uh, that are catering to an audience who want to see something new and something that hasn't been on recently. Um, And so what we did is we opened up the applications with five different plays, which included things like Julius Caesar, um, The Winter's Tale, and then we opened it to our directors and we chose the best production. So it kind of became a democratic thing with a limited beginning um and with the best production was richard the third and of course it's become quite popular now of course like we were mentioning earlier about all the, st- the news stories about the body being found and all the rest of it has that really helped sell your show a bit on that one yeah i think richard the third is kind of in vogue at the moment so you've got his body being found in a leicester car park and you've got the recent bbc production of the white queen which kind of put richard the third in a completely different light and kind of as the pretty boy as mostly the hero for quite a lot of the production and Shakespeare's play is an kind of entirely different angle because it is, he's the villainised character. It's propaganda, apart from anything else, for the current Queen Elizabeth. Um, and so it is a really fascinating play and it has had really famous people like Kevin Spacey come to it and it's just a fantastic thing to be able to give to student actors and we took an opportunity with relish. Fantastic. I mean, you are serial, you're serial dra- drama people, aren't you? I mean, what other productions have you been involved with? Um, I'm currently producing um, with Jess Walinski the production of Dr Faustus at the Cambridge Arts Theatre. Fantastic. Which is um, with the Marlowe Society and it happens every year and there's a professional director, professional designer and then students come in and get to have that experience with other people. But um, we're also kind of serial offenders at the um, ADC Theatre, um, which is the main student theatre and it's just a fantastic place to work. You there's a ridiculous number of productions there there's two every week for 10 weeks in a row and it's just a fantastic group of people so cambridge is the place to be if you want some fantastic local theater then oh yeah there it is <laughs> Fan- fantastic what i like to hear okay well i'll be talking to you more very shortly so don't go anywhere make yourself comfortable good morning man katari cambridge 105 too good to be forgotten just gone 9 33 on your monday morning hope you're having a good day january the 13th 2014 i've now been joined in the chair opposite me by phoebe 
you. Good morning, Phoebe. How are you? Good morning. I'm very good, thank you. So you're the production designer for the production itself of uh, Richard III. What were the challenges in, in producing in producing it as such for that, your designs? Well, evidently we were um, meant to be going on tour, uh, which means you've got a very limited amount of stuff you can take. You've got to be able to put it up in a different venue every day um, and got, it's got to look good in every different venue and the actors have got to be able to use it. Um, We've got a slightly genius idea, which was to not bring any extra set on tour, so we're using a lot of the equipment that you would use to go on tour on the stage. Um, so it's quite, it's quite an interesting, interesting looking production. Um, the other challenge is that we're not doing Shakespeare traditionally, so with costumes and the sort of setting you're creating with the stage, we've gone quite strange, a little bit modern. It, you didn't like so you had to try and work out where we were putting it which is really exciting so i mean i mean it sounds like an absolutely fantastic production i mean and i know uh, from experience working with touring artists that the, the, the set is obviously something that's kind of important for the audience but is also something that's very kind of restricted to the amount of stuff you can carry and you mentioned your tour i mean whereabouts was that tour meant to be going did you do you have a list of places that you knew you were going with uh yeah we do um so it's a european tour group as well, European tour, as mentioned. Um, we were going to be going to a selection of schools and universities across Europe, including Zurich, uh, Geneva, Brussels. Um, yeah. So you, you were... Oh, sorry to throw you in the dark there. <laughs> but yeah, okay. so you were, you were very, um, very in demand. So I suppose that is very limited. And how do you find like, the moving of cast around and set and all the rest of it? How does that work for you? Is that, is that quite a logistical nightmare? Um, well, we... As I said, I sort of tried to see it not as a restriction but as an opportunity to do something really exciting with set um, because working in the ADC Theatre, you've got the same stage, um, which is exciting, but it's really good to be able to play with different other spaces. Um, with all the actors and everything, everyone in Cambridge Theatre is great and these the other two guys that are with me are very, very organised. Um, so it hasn't been too difficult. Yeah, it's not too difficult. I like good that. to work with. <laughs> nice and easy to work with. That's brilliant. And the last one I want to ask you is how long have you been involved in the production kind of design side of things? Um, I've never done anything before Cambridge Theatre, um, but it, I came to university having done a lot of art before um, and thought, hey, how can I keep this up um, and do something new and meet people rather than be stuck in an art studio? Um, so I've been doing it for about a year and a half now um, and have been quite involved not only in productions but getting other people to get involved with production design um, and sort of learning on my feet, I guess, is a good way to put it. Fantastic. That's really, really brilliant. Well, good luck with all your designing and everything in the future as well. Uh, coming up, of course, I have got um, Charlie coming in to talk about the educational side of the tour, so don't go anywhere. So I'm being joined in the studio today by three lovely ladies, all from the Cambridge Eurovi Eur Eurovision, that's wrong, <laughs> University European Theatre Group. And, um, of course, we're talking about their production of uh, Richard III. I've now been joined in the chair by Charlie. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm excited about the production. Brilliant, fantastic. So um, you're kind of in charge of making it accessible and looking at education. I suppose the first thing I want to ask you is, how did you go about making this production accessible for people who don't speak English? Because you were meant to be touring it, weren't you? Yeah, so originally the production was supposed to be touring around um, different countries in Europe. So we always knew that was in our remit. We always knew um, that we had to make it accessible to people whose first language um, isn't English. Um, and so I guess... 
um, Phoebe and the set designers had a lot to do with that, making the set visibly something to look at which makes sense of the production. Um, but also when um, we were casting it and talking to actors and in the rehearsal process, that's something that they always bore in mind that physically um, it's got to make sense um, as well as um, with the language. So how did how did you go about finding schools who are interested in taking you? Do they come to you, or did you did you go to them? What's the what's the process? So ETG um, has been running for about fifty six years now, um, and it's got a big reputation um, in different um, cities in um, sort of Switzerland and Belgium and places like that. So we have long standing relationships with a lot of the schools there um, that we contact, or, or they contact us and get excited and say, "What are you bringing this year?" And um, because a lot of their school, a lot of the schools um, build the production that we're taking to them that year into their curriculum um, and teach the children about the play and different interpretations and then get to see our interpretation as well. So a lot of people, I suppose, look at it, and probably a lot of people like me, to be fair, I'm not a big big Shakespeare fan, so it's about making it accessible. So kind of, can you explain on that one and how you've done that? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of people um, can think Shakespeare's a bit maybe dry, boring, inaccessible. And so what we've done with this production um, is modernised it um, completely. Um, we've kept the language, um, but putting it forward in a way that lends itself to being understood um, with the physicality um, of the actors moving around, with the set and the way it looks. And we've brought in lots of different themes that are there in, the, um, in Shakespeare's um, original scripts that we've drawn out, um, like celebrity fame, the media, and um, things that people will be able to connect with um, more easily. OK, fantastic. Um- one more question for you. There's something about in your press release about this two 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 Richards. Yes. Can you explain that one yes. for me? Um, so this is a concept that our director pitched us that we got really excited about. Um, we've got two people playing Richard. Um, one's one's a girl, one's a boy. Um, and so we have a female Richard yeah, as well as a male. Yeah, we have a female Richard. Okay, it's fantastic. That sounds good. <laughs> um, and we, when we looked at the play, we saw it very much as Richard is manipulating um, his way to the top. Um, and to become king. Um, and so um, a good way we thought of staging that was having two people playing Richard, sort of egging each other on, encouraging each other, showing different aspects of what he's like um, and how he's in control of the rest of the play. And um, you'd have to come see the show to see how that works out. Um, but we think it worked out um, really well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it, of course. So that is Rich the Third on Tuesday the 14th all the way through until uh, January, Saturday the 18th at the um, ADC Theatre, sorry, Cambridge University European Theatre Group. Box office number 01223 Go online, adctheatre.com. Tickets are, of course, eight to ten pounds and on Tuesdays they're eight and six pounds. And that's, of course, running 14th to the 18th of January, right? From 10 till 1. Mid mornings with Linda Ness. This morning, we're going to be joined by Alexandra Scott. Now, Alexandra is a counsellor, coach and communications consultant. And today she's going to talk to us about teenagers, the thorny topic of teenagers. We've been asked to address the question of how to deal with teenagers who are trying to assert themselves and might be rebelling slightly, you know, not not too, but maybe slightly or maybe terribly, against the rules that we want them to follow. 
Good morning, Alexandra. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Cambridge 105. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Well, thank you. Now, you you deal with this all the time, don't you? Poor poor you. Yes. Dealing with teenagers. I mean, I have I've got a teenager. She's not naughty at all. She's not really bad. But they're just little issues, and they do start to assert themselves, don't they? They do start to kind of say, you know, no, <laughs> or just ignore you. Yes. That's the big thing. Just ignore you. How, so how do you deal with this, Alexandra? What if you what if you want them to keep their room tidy every week, and you can't actually walk across the floor because it's absolutely covered. <laughs> actually. (laughs) Well, this is the age when teenagers are learning to assert themselves, become independent and remove themselves from their parents, become individuals. And uh, really, this is the time when actually hearing no from your teenager is a shock Mm -hmm. for the parent. Mm -hmm. They become a little bit disrespectful, the odd eye roll, a little bit of sarcasm. It's very, very important. Key is to be consistent with uh-huh. them and how you, how you address what they're doing. So every parent has the right to their own independent parenting style. It depends whether if you run a, a very strict household, then you don't want your teenager to get the, the power from you. So if they say something, like, oh, nice one, mum. <laughs> then the important thing is to not rise to it. Mm -hmm. If you ignore something, a behaviour loses its power and it dies a natural death. And a teenager will realise, actually, that's not working for me, that's not effective. They may try something else, (laughs) Mm -hmm. such as retreating into their room, ignoring you altogether. Mm -hmm. You'll, Mm -hmm. You'll get the odd grunt instead of a response. But with the influx of hormones that teenagers get... They, they don't know how to channel those emotions that are flooding through them. And they tend to either be frustrated or angry or upset. And this tends to either be explosive and they'll be very, very quiet. And then all of a sudden, for no reason known to anyone except them, there'll be an explosion of, you don't understand, I hate you, mm. I don't like it here anymore. Mm-hmm. You do get a sense a lot of the time they, they much prefer to be with their friends than with their family. Yes. Do you think? Do you find that that's the case with lots of lots of teenagers? They feel that only their own peers understand them. Mm. It's uh, it's a pack mentality. <laughs> yeah. Genetically. Oh, I know. When there's a few of them together, you're really in trouble. <laughs> Genetically, where we've got a pack mentality that we we flock to our own age group, our own demographic, and they have the same problems and the same life. So when we're trying to tell a teenager, you know, get off instant messenger, get off Facebook, you've got a, uh, a test to study for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts are, you know, I want my teenager, my child to do well in their test so that they don't, uh, you know, fall behind or on their studies their life though is if I don't talk to my friend right now about the minutiae of what's happened with the boy I fancy or did you hear what such and such said at school then I'm going to fall behind and therefore my ranking in my little teen pack is going to be affected Mm -hmm. so it's important when you do address you know with your teenager maybe you've been online a little bit too long now or it's important, and rather than in an, what they sense as an attack, it's, 
understanding, even if it's something you don't agree with. Yes, I understand it's important for you to discuss what so-and-so said to this other person, but at the same time, I know it's important that you do well in your studies. Yeah. So setting, capping a time limit for internet, for example. A lot of parents aren't aware how much time that their teenagers are spending online. It's almost like a cyber bubble, I call Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. where a parent will say, okay, enough time on your PC. So they switch off the PC. Everyone thinks they're being very well behaved, but they immediately switch on their smartphone Mm. or their iPad or their using Snapchat or any of these other multitudes of social media platforms that they now have at their disposal. Yeah, and this is a really new problem. It wasn't around, Mm. you know, when, when, well, certainly when I I was young. It just, you know, it didn't exist. It, you know, it wasn't there. And it is a real problem. And actually, I know with my daughter, she's on the internet far too much. I was saying earlier on on this show that we, we had to lure her out yesterday for a walk you know she was given a really really good camera for Christmas and we, we said right come on I knew she wasn't happy about it we were jokingly saying we're going to the outer net Jenny switch, <laughs> off, switch off the internet and she was kind of, of joining in in this and saying will there be a firewall <laughs> And you know it's quite quite funny, but she's just on her laptop all the time. My mm-hmm. daughter, I know, I know, and I think other parents that I meet are saying exactly the same thing. And it's of course the the trouble is, she does her schoolwork on her laptop as well. Mm. So it's very very. And you can see the screen the screen switching. Mm-hmm. You know, a bit like being a manager in an office, and everyone's <laughs> screen switches as you walk through it. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. You know, you walk into her room or or into the kitchen where I often have her doing her homework, mm-hmm. and you you know if you if you go out you walk back and you can see the flash as the screen turns round from Twitter or or some you know Facebook or something on onto something uh, slightly more sensible. We hope. Advice I've given before is if it's homework time in the house, perhaps to switch the Wi-Fi off if it's a laptop. Mm-hmm. And a lot of complaints arise, but actually they don't have an argument. There is no valid argument. That you'll often get the, oh, I need the internet to be able to research. To research. Uh-huh, that's what we get. Mm-hmm. In which case, uh, I've said, well, you can, know, you can invest in encyclopedia and give them a book and have <laughs> them do it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> If it, you know, this is if it's a real problem. Mm-hmm. The other, or the other problem is lack of sleep. Teenagers are texting and messaging each other in the middle of the night. And when you and I were teenagers, uh, this wasn't possible. Your parents certainly wouldn't have let you use your house phone, the landline, mm. at two o'clock in the morning. That's true. But now, if you're texting in bed, you know, it's silent. No one can hear you having a conversation. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. And actually, this lack of sleep and this disrupted sleep is starting to affect teenagers now. And a lot of uh, schools, uh, teachers, social workers are all commenting on this phenomenon. And so my advice has recently been, if this is a problem that you're noticing in your children, consider having the chargers in your bedroom. And so if your son or daughter has mobile phones, they get put on charge at say 10 o'clock at night in the evening in your room and they can collect them the next morning. Wow that is a tremendous idea. This will cause a lot of uproar from your teenagers because they'll say the first argument I hear is ah but I use my cell phone as an alarm clock. Uh huh. Yeah. But you can go to Tesco and buy an alarm clock for them. Yeah. For a yeah. fiver. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is really interesting, Alexandra. We have Alexandra Scott in with us, and uh, Alexandra is a counsellor, coach, and communications consultant, and she's talking to us today about 
teenagers and this is a very interesting conversation especially if you have teenagers at home we've already talked about about the internet and the fact that they're addicted to it and uh and the fact that they're sleeping, and we were just talking about this while the tune was on, weren't we, Alexandra? Mm. The fact they're sleeping with phones under their pillows, which yeah. I don't think is very good for them. And, and you were saying, well, they're, they're buzzing at all hours yeah, and things. Yeah, they're set to vibrate. So when they get push messages, if one of their friends has liked one of their photos uh, or put a comment, even just a smiley face, it buzzes, it vibrates, and this disrupts their sleep all night. It's the last thing they check as they go to sleep, which doesn't help them to unwind properly. And it's the first thing they check when they wake up. So this is kind of an addictive cycle, which mm-hmm. needs to needs to have some kind of boundaries set in place. And sleep sleep is probably a whole topic that we could maybe come back to another time when, mm. when you come back, because Definitely. sleep is a huge, a huge thing. I know that they can sleep for weeks just about you know during, season. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. during the holidays it's incredibly difficult on the weekend really hard to get them out of bed mm-hmm. uh, but that's we'll we'll come back to that that's probably a, se- a separate topic i was also saying du- during the break another little problem that sometimes arises uh, you set have a set of values mm-hmm. but other parents might not quite have the same set of values yes. and you get this feedback of but so and so is allowed to do it mm-hmm. or and such and such and they all my friends every Everybody at my school does such and such. You get that as well. It's Uh, it's a a desperation to fit in and be just like your friends. And in fact, if possible, be the the coolest one of your friends. And by definition, this means be the one who has the most freedom, the most flexibility, the most laid back parents. Um, hmm. And the f- most fashionable and stuff like that. I know. Yes. I know. At my daughter's school, there's a set that they call the popular ones, mm-hmm. and I think everyone strives to be. Although my daughter has gone anti that, and she doesn't want to be in the popular ones because she feels that she's on the unpopular. And I don't think that's true at all. Actually, I don't think they're un- her or her friends are perfectly nice and perfectly lovely, and they're not unpopular. There's nothing wrong with them, but they have this sense, and I'm sure that some of the ones that are defined as popular also think that they're mm-hmm. not popular I think this even within within cliques there's always a hierarchy or a perceived hierarchy Mm. and it's very important for teenagers to get a good sense of self-esteem and if they feel that they're not winning at being popular they'll win at being different or yes alternative yes or sporty or musical or they'll find their own niche Mm -hmm. and the ones who don't find a niche quite often will retreat into their rooms play computer games or be on the internet searching for something mm-hmm. that that they're good at so it is important to give them time and space to do their own thing to be antisocial, if you like but also very important to keep talking to them keep that channel of communication open lure them out as you say of their rooms and make them whether it's a family meal mm-hmm. that you know there's a house rule that you have to come and sit and yes we always insist on that we always eat round the table or if possible i mean some households it's not possible but if somebody can be at home when your teenagers come home from school even if it's a quick 15 minute interaction on how the day was i realize it's something like pulling teeth sometimes <laughs> yes you know, how was yes fine <laughs> Uh, however, it's still important because if there is a channel of communication and they know it's open from your end, they can choose to have it open or closed from their end. And they feel that it's something small, but it's in their control. Mm-hmm. If you involve them in your day-to-day activities and talk to them about things that aren't just problems, 
but just anything, mm -hmm. then they know that this small talk is there and they can use it to turn it into something bigger. Yes, and they often do actually. I often find car journeys are very good for, for getting to the bottom of little niggling or nickel, little problems that they mm -hmm. perceive to have and we think they're tiny. You know, yes. that in the scheme of things, in the scheme of life, they're tiny problems, but they're huge to them. Absolutely yes. huge. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And yeah. quite often it is a quiet time, a car journey or a television ad break, you know, that people find this opportunity to talk. And it's very important that we actually listen to our teenagers and put down our phones because we are just as bad as adults, actually, as... You know, you're, you're taking a phone call with one hand or making sure that, uh, uh, you know, the dishes have been done and keeping half an eye on something else, work emails. And it's important that we put everything down and listen to them, even if it seems quite trivial to us, yeah. so that they know that we are listening. Mm -hmm. And that's the most important thing for them, is to be listened to, because they feel that that is their perception of being understood it's very frustrating with that many hormones flowing around you and it's not until your early 20s that you actually develop an off switch and this this learning process of dealing with these frustrations um, teenagers quite often handle this by becoming sarcastic yeah or unresponsive so it's very important that we keep talking to them constantly, even about the little things. Okay. That's been really, really fascinating, Alexandra. Thank you very much for coming in to speak to us. And I think we'll, we'll maybe have you back in a month's time, if that's all right with you. Of course. And we can, we can choose another topic. And if anyone out there is listening and they're thinking, I have a problem, any kind of life, life mm. problem, not just about teenagers. We've decided to start with teenagers. So whether it's about your children of any age or whatever you would like um, us to discuss. We can keep you completely anonymous. So if you would like to let me know, contact me at linda at cambridge105.fm and we will let, we'll feature the problem that you're maybe facing at the moment in our next chat. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Thank you very Thank much you. for coming in. From 10 till 1. Mid-mornings with Phil Rowe. Our guest for the Wednesday mid-morning show around about 11.30 is when we feature a guest each day and uh, we have someone who actually is very fascinating to uh, interview. I watched uh, a little seminar piece I suppose she did uh, on stage, I'm not quite sure that was, I think it was in the UK. Uh, it was really quite captivating, a lovely 10 minute piece. Valerie Mason-John, good morning to you, welcome to the show. We start really with your background Valerie. Uh, you grew up around the Barking area of London, I guess on the Central Line. It's kind of just in the Essex area, is that where you're originally from? Yeah, Barking, Barking side. I grew up in a Bernardo home there. Yeah, so it's, it was a difficult start. But you, you were born in Cambridge, though, you tell me. Yes, I was born in Cambridge, and apparently I lived my first uh, four and a half years in Cambridge. Yeah, I can't really remember my first four years. Probably it might have been good that you didn't. But I wonder if it's what we call now Ditchburn Place which is on Mill Road. You know, that used to be the old maternity hospital before the Rosie Maternity Hospital was built. And do you know what you and I probably share then? You're outing my age. <laughs> well, I know you were born in the 1960s, but I'll never give a, a lady's age away, Valerie, on, on the air. But um, I was born... Okay. I was born in the previous decade, just at the very tail end of the 1950s, and the old maternity hospital is now Ditchburn Place. And I think that you and I were born in the same hospital. So how about that then, all Snack. those years ago? That's about half a mile away from here. That's probably a happier time for you 
It was a very unhappy time for you, though, uh, presumably once you left Bernardo's or were you uh, while well, you were in the care of Bernardo's? Yeah, I would say um, it, w- it was a very unhappy time when I left Bernardo's. I, as a young child, that I think that was the first time I was aware of sadness and unhappiness, really. A little bit more about your life then. So, I mean, again, your, your more formative years, your teenage years, again, a very unhappy time for you. I know that you don't mind uh, disclosing too much, much of it. I mean, we won't get graphic about what happened to you on, on air, but you can disclose a little bit more about those times. Yeah, um, what I'd say is is that uh, I grew up in Bernardo's and um, during the 60s and 70s there was a big move to close down those kind of children's homes or those orphanages mm. um, and the feeling was is that you shouldn't put kids in care from naught and that actually try and adopt them out or foster them out and so those of us who were in those orphanages there was a big thing to try and find parents and if they could do there was this big exodus of matching kids with their parents and it was just crazy because you know all of a sudden this kid was leaving and going off to live with their parents and then two weeks later they were back again Mm. (laughs) with the suitcases and uh, my turn came and uh, well unfortunately it didn't last two weeks I was with my biological mother for 18 for 18 months and what I would say is is that you know in a way she was forced into having me you know a black woman in the 60s couldn't find anywhere to live so they gave her the carrot of we'll give you accommodation only if you take your daughter and you know she didn't want she didn't want to take me you know she had four kids wasn't didn't raise any of them I think intuitively she knew she couldn't raise kids so she was forced into this situation and uh, yeah I ended up being taken away by the police 18 months later Oh, goodness. Abandoned at six weeks then. So you went into foster homes, orphanages, you lived on the streets. Fifteen, you were locked up for shoplifting. Valerie? Yeah, I did a ball store. I was at Ballwood Hall. Um, yeah, in, in fact, I wouldn't even say that that was a sad time. It was a very different time. But what's really interesting in that experience, I mean, I was there for, you know, about 18 months. I lost a lot of time. I thought it was another kid's home. So I lost a lot of time and I did a lot of solitary confinement. And it was during that time I I think I tapped into something different. You know, I could, I was this amazing artist. Um, I also learned yoga at that time, but I I think there I, I tapped into the stillness of mind. And it was during those times that I was able to make very clear decisions for myself and knew that when I came out I I wanted to live a different life because what I should say is is that at the age of um, 14 I made a decision to live on the streets and it was in fact it was safer to live on the streets and actually live in in some of the care facilities that I was in that that says something about uh, institutions doesn't it yeah that's, that's yeah. terrible yeah and you were uh, in in fact battled with anorexia um, and bulimia nervosa as well at the age of 17 when you walked back out into the world after that. Yes, I I suppose I was a late bloomer with that disease, Um, although obviously there were signs before then. But yeah, I... Yeah, um, 
what can I say really I mean that was that has been the tyranny of my of my life um, you know I wouldn't wish it upon anybody the hell of the addiction you mm. know I think you know when we have eating disorders is it's it, your voice is gone and 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 in a way my voice was taken away I when I was going to live with my biological mother I made it clear that I didn't want to go and mm nobody listened i went and that was it i lost faith in 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 human life really and uh yeah so i yeah that was the legacy i think the so you marched on through your 20s and at the age of 27 you started getting introduced to meditation who did that uh, for you who who brought that into your life well it's gosh i always had this sense that i wanted to meditate and i really think that came from when i was being in Boston, especially when you do solitary confinement and you don't see anybody because I always had this thing that I wanted to meditate and I started to verbalize it and in fact I had people around me who did it but you know I was like oh well that's what my friends are doing I'm I'm not going to go there and then one day a friend said to me hey uh, there's this meditation teacher why don't you come along and that was it really so I first did transcendental meditation and it was great I was so high after the meditation I thought yeah I like this <laughs> You worked very hard academically because you became an international correspondent uh, covering Aboriginal land rights. Obviously, you spent some time down under working with the native uh, Australians at one time. And you were able to take the faith that was developing in you and the positivity that was beginning to start to exude from you uh, forward at that time. Presumably, then you were around about 30 years old. Yeah, I'd say, I mean education was one of the things that saved my life and I was fortunate that um, academically I was a high achiever and also I had somebody um, who I met in some of the care facilities who gave me a home when I came out of Borstal. So, you know, as soon as I came out of 17, I, I, I did my O-levels, I did my A-levels and went to university, although I did drop out. And... Um, yeah, I just started travelling. I, I went travelling, I went travelling, I did the kibbutz, went to university yeah. and then trained as a journalist and did more travelling and that was absolutely fantastic. So you've worked uh, together, I guess, with Dr Groves, well Paramabandhu, and you've both got together to collaborate, write a book. You delivered the manuscript to the publisher last June. Obviously I had it proofread and it's actually been published this month. Uh, Windholz publications a local uh, publisher here on mill road just around the corner from us here in cambridge uh, which obviously got passed through for print have you ever written a book before uh, this Valerie? is my eighth book um and i would say that actually um dr parama bandu groves comes from a completely different um place than i do i would say had a, a more privileged life um hasn't had addiction issues He's a psychiatrist who specialises in addictions in the National Health Service and has designed a lot of stuff around mindfulness. And me, with my route, and we both end up in the same place because we're both Buddhists. And we put this book together. Uh, firstly, well, from my perspective, I cleaned up in the meditation rooms. So in a way, it was the Buddhist teachings that um, gave me abstinence and sobriety. Paramabandhu, he works with many people who have been doomed by the 12 steps, have fought, you know, because the 12 steps haven't worked for them. What else is there? And perhaps they've been quite suicidal. And so in a way, it was the, the two of us really wanting to put something together 
um, coming from that Buddhist perspective. And I, and I want to say that, you know, I think 12 steps is absolutely brilliant. Um, and I would encourage people to go to 12 steps and really try, try 12 steps, but it doesn't fit to everybody. So this one's called The Eight-Step Recovery. That's the title of the book, Eight-Step Recovery, Using the Buddha's Teachings to Overcome Addiction. The book's out right now. Valerie, who you're listening to, uh, one of the co-authors of the book, Valerie Mason-John, who's with us, and Dr. Paraman Bandu Groves. Uh, the book is uh, out in the shops, I guess, or available to order online from Windhorse Publications themselves. And Amazon. And Amazon too. So you're on a bit of a, a tour. You're going to be at the London Buddha Centre later this week as well Valerie and you're staying in Cambridge today you're going along to the local Buddhism centre here on Mill Road just around the corner from us to kind of do a, a little launch isn't it of the book yeah here and I'm in Ipswich tomorrow that's actually. right on the way to Guildford towards the end of your touring time mm. have a good tour it's lovely to meet you and it's lovely to know that you've turned your life around in terms of positivity one thing that struck me you educated yourself you pushed yourself through university might have dropped out but you're a very bright person. I can see that what was very dark in your childhood through your teen years to the way you are today. How long may you proffer? How many times a day are you able to, um, shall we say, go through the worship of Buddha? Do you find a quiet contemplative moment? Is it on the train? Do you, even while you're walking along the street, can you sort of lose your mind into to, to a calm world of positivity? I do. As a final point. I do make uh, every effort to bring awareness to all things that I do, but formally I practice almost every morning um, before I leave before I leave the house. Uh, occasionally when I have to get up really early, then uh, that doesn't happen. But when I'm off the cushions, yes, when I'm walking, when I'm having um, a cup of tea, I try and bring awareness and loving kindness. It's not just about awareness, it's, but it's loving kindness to myself and to anybody around me, whether that's somebody on the streets who's homeless and asking me for money or whether it's somebody who's done a, a kind of act of kindness towards me. Mm. I try and give loving kindness to whoever is around. That's a great positive note to end on, Valerie. Thank you very much for coming. You cheered me up, actually. You put a smile on my face this morning. I'm always a pretty cheerful soul, but to meet somebody positive like you, who, as I say, has turned around their life so much. That's uh, Valerie Mason-John. Thanks very much for uh, joining us today, Valerie, and safe travels on your tour with the, the book promotion. Thanks very much for coming in to see us today. Thank you. On 105 FM and online. It's 105 Breakfast. Good morning, this is Cambridge 105, Malakatari on breakfast all the way through till 10 o'clock this morning. I've been joined on the phone by the absolutely fantastic star of screen and stage, Kerry Ellis. Good morning, Kerry. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us at 105 Breakfast this morning. Now, you're touring, aren't you? You're in Rent, which comes to the Corn Exchange on Sunday the 9th of February. I am, yes. Um, we're about to uh, go on a... I think it's a 15-date tour. This is uh, actually the third leg of this tour. Um, I think it started out um, as, a, as a few concerts and it, it just became really successful and people really loved the show. And, and three tours later, you know, we're doing really great and it's... It's just really great fun. We're having a great time. Can you tell me about the character that you're going to be playing in this tour? Yeah, I'm playing um, Mimi, which is... Um, she, they all live in this tower block, and 
they're all kind of squatters, really. Um, but um, she has a, basically has an on-off relationship with um, with Roger, who's played by Rory Taylor. Um, and her struggles with her addiction and relationships and... But basically, the show is about different kind of relationships and um, and great songs, really. <laughs> it is a fantastic musical. I think I've seen you in it before, actually, when it was touring last time. Oh, uh, lovely. So how does touring affect your day-to-day life? How do you balance life and touring? <laughs> I don't know if anybody gets the balance right, but that's that's the key word. It's, try, it's trying to balance things. Um, I think what's really nice about this tour is or the tours that I'm doing at the moment, is they're quite they're quite intense, but they're quite short. So I'm not kind of signing up for a year or, or longer. You know, it, it literally is an intensive two and a half, three weeks. Um, so it's really kind of nice. I get to go out and have fun and do the show and then you know, have a bit of time off. So <laughs> it works really nicely for me. So how old were you when you first knew you wanted to be on stage? Oh, God. You know, I don't even remember. It, it, I always wanted to do it or I always did do it I was always kind of at local dance schools and always performing from a young age so it was always kind of in my blood if you, if you like and uh, it, it was never a question it was always what I was going to do. Now I remember you uh, of course for your West End debut that was in My Fair Lady on the West End. I was yeah. How did you feel when you got that part? Oh my god well it was it was incredible really I'd just come off um, a cruise ship I did a cruise ship for nine months and uh, I was 20, I think. Um, and I got this role, and it was just it was life-changing, really. I got to work with uh, Jonathan Price and got a phenomenal cast. Um, and I got to play the role on, on, you know, several occasions. So it was, it was a fantastic production, and I was just honoured to be part of it. You've been in a number of West End and Broadway shows, including We Will Rock You, Les Miserables, Wicked which took you to Broadway. You also performed in Oliver. Do you have a favourite role that you've played so far? I get asked this a lot, and it's, it's really tough because each role is so special to me. I say they're like my children because you invest so much time and energy into each one. You know, they take over your life for a year or two years or however long it is, and, and they just become your life. So it's really difficult because all of them have different um, qualities and... Uh, and things that I've I've kind of invested in them, you know. Uh, uh, Wicked obviously took me to Broadway. Um, we will rock you with the original show. Uh, my Fair Lady was my first West End. Les Mis was a, just a childhood favourite show, an iconic show. Um, so yeah, they're just they're all so different, and I've loved each one. It's very clear to me that what you put into your performance you get out of it. I remember you in Wicked on the West End and, in fact, when I saw you on Broadway as well, they were both equally electrifying performances. Oh, thank you. I loved it. I mean, Wicked is a phenomenal show and to be a part of something, you know, huge and fantastic like that is just an absolute joy. And obviously that it took me to Broadway as well was just a dream. If I remember correctly, that was your Broadway debut, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Um... Yeah, it was. I'd never performed there or anything, and it, it was a real a real experience for me. I loved it. Now, of course, you're well known for your career spanning stage and screen. What would you say is your biggest highlight to date so far? Oh, God. There's so many. Um, the Festival of Remembrance was 
was quite special. Um, again, it was it was being part of something that was, you know, bigger than you and bigger than your performance. Um, that was really special. And quite recently, I performed at the I did my own show at the London Palladium, which was a little bit surreal. Really, one of those things you kind of you dream about. So it was um, that was quite special. Um, I remember that because you know, again, I was there for that album. one as well. Yeah, it was fabulous. Did you come? I was there, yes. I was in the front row. Oh, were you? I was. It was absolutely oh, amazing. Um, and it, I have to say, I followed your career very interestingly because, I mean, I got into going to the West End and all the rest of that, and really the first musical I ever saw was the one with you in it, and that was, of course, My Fair Lady. So from my point of view, you've been one of those stars that I've just been following ever since. Oh, lovely. <laughs> oh, I hope I'm keeping you entertained then. You definitely are. You auditioned for The Voice in 2012, and I felt for you. How did you feel during the audition process <laughs> and, of course, the outcome, which I felt was totally unfair? Well, you know, I'm very used to auditioning. I think people forget that, you know, if, however successful people are, they still have to audition in some form, and I'm used to auditioning. It's obviously not great in front of the nation, but... Um, it wasn't an unnatural um, uh, situation for me um, with The Voice. It was just an opportunity, and I, I they called me up and asked me if I'd like to go on a show, and I did. And and it was, you know, the outcome is the outcome. You can't you can't please everybody. You're never going to be everybody's taste. But what was really nice about the show was I got such a lovely reaction from you know Twitter fans and from. Uh, you know, I got letters and I got a really nice response from the audience and from the crowd on the night as well. I got a really great response. So I, I felt okay. I was pleased with what I did and and you can't really ask anything more. Well, if it's any consolation, I mean, myself and my producer, we both absolutely loved it when we were, when we were watching it. It was a nice surprise to see you there. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a good, it, I, you know, the, the show is, it, it, it's, it's an entertainment show and, and and it does that, it does entertain you. So, um, Can you tell me a bit more about the acoustic album you did? Because you were singing with Brian, mm. Brian May, weren't you? How did that feel? What was yeah. the, It must be the most surreal experience in the world. How was that? I was loved. I mean, this was our second album. We did, um, Brian did anthems with me, produced that and played on it, um, which we also toured with. And then we, we toured acoustically um, and we recorded the entire run. I think we did about I don't know, 12 shows or something, maybe a bit more. And we just loved the way that it sounded. And then we listened to some of them back and we were like, "This is there's an album here. Because it just sounded really, really real and really raw and um, there was real heart in it. And we just put together all the best ones from each venue and, and put it on an album. And people have loved it, which is great. And I love it. So it's really, um, I'm really proud of it. I think it sounds... Sounds really great. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic to perform like that and to have that album out. Yeah, I've I've got it as well. I've I've got most of your stuff Aww. to be fair. So I'm probably, uh, probably the biggest <laughs> biggest fan around at the moment. Just one more then. What is a typical day in the life when you're not touring? How do you like to spend your day? I mean, do you like an early morning? What do you like to do? Well, I'm a new mum, so um, Congratulations. at the moment it's pretty it's pretty much um, my little son takes up most of my day. Um, I like to take my dogs out. I like just to do, you know, really kind of homely, normal things, really. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, that's, that's my life. But I love the balance of my life. You know, I get to go and perform and, and record albums and 
do some crazy things, but then I get to do some great things like spend time with my family and, um, you know, and at home. So it's, it's really nice. I'm very fortunate. Oh, thank you very much for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the fantastic Carrie Ellis. Thank you. Thank you.